Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. So as we've been discussing it nearly all day, it's kind of an irrational thought to think that COVID didn't leak from a lab in Wuhan, China. Now, I can't prove it as of yet. I said it's irrational to think otherwise. The idea that after all this time, we still believe it came from the wet markets and people eating bats, that it occurred naturally, it naturally jumped from animals uh, to humans, as Dr. Fauci and others want us to believe, that isn't where the American psyche was at. The American psyche was at, well, we know that the Chinese are engaged in gain-of-function research. Now, by the way, so are many, many others. But it's not a concern so much when the United States does it, although one could argue that maybe there's an ethical issue. I don't happen to have that issue, considering the good numbers of drugs and things that come from gain-of-function research, which is how do you take something and manipulate it into something else? And there are stories, of course, and there's history, and there's, there's medical documentation, scientific documentation of good things coming from that, just not from the communist Chinese. Because no good comes from the communist Chinese. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. But the idea that if you were to have talked about this, oh yeah, this came from a a, a lab, leaked. I don't even believe leaked as a bioweapon. I've never believed that. They're communists, they're incompetent, so it leaked. And people said, oh, how dare you? Oh, that's racist. It is not racist. It's rational. So when we saw the news, the Wall Street Journal reporting that the U.S. Department of Energy said they had low confidence in this virus having leaked from a lab in China. Low confidence doesn't mean we don't believe it. At first, they didn't even have a confidence. Now they've got low confidence. That's a step up. They have a belief it came from a lab in China. They believe it was leaked. The FBI has a moderate uh, feel for this, moderate confidence. That's where the American people have been, and they were told they were terrible for speaking about it, and there are still some people who are like, how dare you talk about it? This was Mark Thiessen over on Fox News hitting the thing directly out of the park. Most Americans looked at this news and said, well, duh, of course it came from a lab. Right. Everyone, everyone in the, every normal person in America has known for years that this came from a lab. I mean, think about this. The coincidence would be involved. It happened in Wuhan, which just which is the home of the Wuhan Institute of Virology that studies bad coronaviruses, but it didn't come right. from a lab. I mean, they were do, they were do, we know they were doing gain and function research. We know they were doing it at biosafety level two instead of biosafety level four, which was with the spacesuits. We know that three people from the Wuhan lab got sick in November 2019 at the start of the pandemic and had to go to the hospital with COVID symptoms. But yeah, it didn't come from a lab. And that is how every American, well, most every American looks at it. We're open for debate. We're open for the conversation. We want more data. But we were shut down from having the conversation for years because to talk about it was racist or or you had Fauci saying it didn't happen. Yeah, it's looking like it was a lab leak. But because it was a lab leak. Keep it here. This is Tony Katz today. Should the town of Speedway give the loan? That's a legitimately good question. Tony Katz, good to be with you. Uh, Gary Dick joins us from InsideIndianaBusiness.com on Twitter. 
at IIB, at Gary Dick, G-E-R-R-Y, at Gary Dick on Twitter uh, as well. I mean, we have a, a bunch of things to get to, including how Evansville makes the top of the list when it comes to best places in the U.S. for remote workers. But I want to start with this story in Speedway because anybody who's driven by the track has seen this shell uh, that was started for a hotel. And it's there, and it's just a ridiculous eyesore. And the group that was first putting it together basically ran out of money. Couldn't make the thing happen. Then it got purchased by another group. After all, it was supposed to open in 2018, and they're working on securing financing to finish this thing up. The town of Speedway is considering an offer of a short-term construction loan to get this thing going. What's the latest here? Where is Speedway on this subject? Yeah, that is the latest, Tony, in terms of this uh, this short-term gap loan, if you will, $2.5 million dollars. The project is the Wilshaw, and that dates back to uh, you know Wilbershaw and the the history, the heritage of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. As you said, it's right across the street from the track, and it has been sitting in a uh, partially built state uh, for months and months. There was a feeling that it was actually going to happen, and they were going to get this thing done. We did a story out there last summer. And there's a lot of optimism, a 126-room hotel. And anyone who's been in Speedway along Main Street there knows that there has been a ton of uh, uh, redevelopment and investment. And the, the town has really transformed in a number of ways with this one exception. So uh, this latest move by the uh, Speedway Town Council, the group is uh, Hotel Equities Group. They're out of Atlanta. Two and a half million bucks kind of give them a gap, uh, some gap funding to get this thing done. We'll see how it pans out. It's one of those things where, you know, they may not want to do it, but you're talking about the 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 mouth of of Main Street right there, yeah. right there on the circle. The track is right across the street, and and you already you're pot committed. This is kind of like this is the way we look. Hey, we've got this really awesome downtown. We've got this outrageous Main Street that we've recreated. The racing world has further embraced Speedway, even though too many places are going to Zionsville, maybe for them. And then it's like, oh yeah, by the way, here's this eyesore. They're they're stuck, right? They're going to have to write the check. Well, you can't go in. I mean, it's so noticeable. It's so obvious, as you said. Anyone who drives uh, back and forth on West 16th Street sees this. And I would be interested to know, uh, you know, how the folks at Penske Entertainment view this in their their larger uh, vision for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and what that will become, additional development, that kind of thing. Because this uh, this group, they want to put an upscale hotel in there. Uh, Hilton, I think it's a Hilton Tapestry uh, brand is what uh, what is targeted for that site. So there, there's a lot of feeling that this would be a, a really important development, important piece of this uh, Main Street redevelopment that has been unfolding for years and years. You know, they now, I can remember, is before I even started the business show. Uh, it was a Channel Six doing stories on this. People did not think it would happen. It has happened, with this one exception, the hotel that uh, is still struggling to get uh, get completed. Talking to Gary Dick of InsideIndianaBusiness.com on Twitter at IIB, InsideIndianaBusiness.com. Now let's head over to this story about remote workers. There's there's this list the Wall Street Journal put out, the best places to live in the U.S. for remote workers. Evansville is number three. Lafayette is number five. Fort Wayne is number ten. Who put together the list 
And how does this come to be? Yeah, as you said, uh, it came out uh, last week in the Wall Street Journal. So a reputable publication uh, uh, put this uh, uh, top cities for remote workers list out. And you say, you say it, not one, not two, but three in the top ten uh, in Indiana. So very interesting what they look for, what they say that these remote workers are looking for, affordability. A lot of them looking for kind of smaller town quality of life uh, around the country, getting out of the uh, the coasts and some of these uh, metro areas, uh, quality of life. High-speed Internet access is a huge a huge factor. Actually, I think Springfield, Missouri was number one on the list, and the top item on that for these remote workers, high-speed Internet, uh, Internet access. The other piece of this, Tony, I think you and I have talked about this a bit before. There are lots of uh, efforts, communities around the state offering incentives for uh, remote workers uh, to uh, to move to their community, uh, Lafayette, West Lafayette, uh, their package to get remote workers to, to move there is valued at uh, ten thousand dollars, including uh, uh, relocation stipend of five thousand uh, bucks for those who uh, uh, relocate and live and work in uh, the Discovery Park District at Purdue. Uh, Evansville is offering fifty nine hundred bucks. I think $5,000 cash for folks to work. So it's an active uh, uh, market, uh, if you will. Uh, Make My Move is a company that started. Bill Osterley, co-founder of uh, Angie's List, uh, started this company that is all all focused on getting remote workers, workers who are mobile, to move to Indiana. So – I, 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 people look at this. Wait, we're paying people to move here. What yeah. is what is the value in this? How do cities sell this? And when when Lafayette is confronted with why are we paying people to move here? When Evansville is confronted, what is the argument that they give? It gets back to that whole uh, issue that you and I have talked about many times in talent and and where do these workers come from that these these communities are going to need. To uh, to fill jobs that they hope to attract and grow in their their individual communities. So it's getting talent, the right kind of talent, um, you, you know, educated, mobile uh, workers to move in in their communities and uh, really add to the quality of life and add to the vibrancy of the com- uh, of, of communities. It's interesting, the, the, uh, though, Tony. It, it looks like there's been a dip in remote work, uh, remote workers, uh, if you will. We see. I think it was Disney that came out and said, hey, we want you back in the office for at least four days a week, four out of five days. The workers, you know, push back on that, and there's a bit of controversy there. So uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's an ebb and flow of uh, how work, the work environment will ultimately be um, here in the United States uh, post-pandemic. The, the other argument, I would assume, is the more people you have, the more opportunities you have for others to create businesses providing the amenities that those people who have an income want to spend on, right? So it, one would argue that the more remote workers that you have, the more dollars that you have in the, in the area, in the neighborhood to create jobs of a more, well, brick-and-mortar type. You, without question, you look at the developments around the state of Indiana. You look at at Bottle Works here in downtown Indianapolis. That live work play development. You go to Fort Wayne, Electric Works, a similar type live work play development. Tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars being invested in these types of of developments, all aimed at attracting and keeping talent in the communities to uh, to spend money to live work play, but also also to work and to uh, to have a pool of uh, qualified workers for. These these companies uh, to tap into. 
Before I let you go, talking to Gary Dick inside IndianaBusiness.com on Twitter at IIB. Uh, House passes the budget in the state of Indiana, $43.3 billion budget proposal. No Democrats uh, are, are for this. There's a tremendous amount here regarding vouchers for education. Are you hearing that this is going to be a problem in the Senate? We've heard that some members of the Indiana Senate not as strong on the voucher idea as in the House. Are you hearing that this is going to be a problem or is this budget going to go through? Yeah, I think this budget will will go through, but the debate is is just beginning. We're at the halfway point now of the Indiana General Assembly, and that's where the rubber hits the road now. And and there will be some uh, some uh, robust debate, no question about it. But I don't foresee any, uh, or have not heard of any uh, any surprises necessarily to expect in the second half of the session. I think the second half of the session might very well be a mystery to a lot of people. My thanks to Gary Dick inside IndianaBusiness.com on Twitter at IAB. And there's actually, I mean, there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. There really is. And when I say the, the second half of the session is, is a mystery, it's that, you know, talk about this budget. For what reason would state senators have an issue with vouchers that doesn't exist in the House? It, all of a sudden, there's really a different ideological core at play between the House and the Senate on the idea of whether or not parents should have the most opportunity to provide to their kids the best education possible. This really is a debate. Wow. Talk about just being kind of really grossed out. Just disgusted. How could you, how is it possible that someone in today's world views themselves as a Republican, but doesn't view the idea that parents should be able to decide the best educational opportunity for their child and the money should go with the kid and not the school? Money should follow students and should not fund systems. Let me say it again for those of you playing the home game. Money should follow students and should not fund systems. We should not be funding schools because, well, what the important thing here is that we fund the schools. No, that is not what's important. What's important is that students get the money so parents can make the decision of where to send their student because they know their kid and they know what's best and they know the education that they want their kid to have. But Tony, shouldn't we have an education that is best, most helpful or or best for society? Well, we have a disagreement there about what's best for society. Well, clearly we want them to be proficient at math. Should we take a look at the schools? We were talking about this earlier. Schools all across the country that have grades, uh, that have students at grade level with zero proficiency. You think that's what the schools are providing? That's exactly the problem. There are teachers who want to provide this, but there are schools that are absolutely not providing this. And we need to ask ourselves why that is. Well, first, we have gotten into this false analysis, or or, I'm not going to say analogy, that's the wrong word, this false theory that the answer is, well, if we just gave the schools more money, they'd have more resources, they could, they could teach better. That's not it. That, that is not it at all. The school, as we know it, the public school, is not built 
to educate. It is built to sustain the school, which is why the system has to be broken. System has to be eradicated. Teachers union has to be broken in two. You've heard me talk about it many, many times. We're not built for the student. We're built for the classroom itself, the actual physical location. We're built for the machine, not for the student. The second part of this is because people take that as a very anti-teacher move. Let me go back to a conversation I've been having for over a decade, which is the teacher has to be treated like a professional and has to be able to engage their classroom like a professional. And the only way that is done is that some students are going to be expelled and they're going to be expelled for forever. Part of the reason we have the problems in education as we have is because of social promotion. The idea that students just get moved up and up the grade, le- grade levels, regardless of their skill set, because, well, we can't leave them behind. It won't be good for their maturity. It won't be good for their emotional growth. Not knowing how to do math is also not good for one's emotional growth. And when you allow kids who have, well, whatever issue they have, some may actually have a mental issue, some may have a discipline issue, and most importantly, some are never told that they have to leave the classroom. They're allowed to be disruptive because, after all, you can't send these kids home, and then other kids don't get to learn. I consider that to be abusive. So the, the teacher has to be treated like a professional, has to be allowed to throw kids out of their classroom for forever. You're out. You're done. You're gone. You don't get to come back. No one cares what your mother or father has to say when they come complain to the school. You're interrupting, so you're gone. Which is why I have stated that in order to get social services, you need to have a high school diploma. You watch how quickly people start paying attention in school. You require a high school diploma for social services You watch how quickly things change. Now, I've had some people try and come back to me on that, but in the main, I'm offering up a solution to a problem which starts by empowering teachers who are desperate to teach and yet are rendered powerless because there are some students out there who think they're in charge and why shouldn't they? Because after all, their parents and the schools tell them they're in charge because they can't be expelled and they can't be removed and the teacher can't do this and the teacher can't do that. And we see the videos all over TikTok and other places. Treat the teacher, like they're a professional, let them be professionals and put the onus on the student and the family to show up on time and be respectful. I didn't say they had to get A's. You didn't hear me say that. But they can't be disruptive. Then they're gone. Then they can figure out their life. And if you say to me, Tony, you can't put that on a 16-year-old. I cannot allow 16-year-olds to ruin the educational opportunity for other 16-year-olds. I have to think about the whole. If you want to do something else for the 16-year-old who's causing a problem, I'm willing to listen to that. But I'm not willing to allow that 16-year-old to ruin the educational experience for everybody else. I'm not willing to put society on hold to risk society's growth and future because one student wants to act up and tell all the other students, well, you just have to suffer through it. That's obscene to me. I would find it hard to believe that Republicans in the Indiana Senate don't think, therefore, parents should have, you know, the opportunity to decide what's best for their kids. I'd find that shocking. 
absolutely shocking. But we're going to watch it. I'm Tony Katz. So it's going to be another $2 billion for Ukraine. That's another $2 billion on top of the billions that's already being spent on Ukraine. And the argument is, yeah, it's better than going to war with Russia. You go to war with Russia utilizing Ukraine to go to war with Russia. You're able to destabilize Russia, destabilize Putin, and you don't lose any uh, blood. You just lose some treasure, but uh, the treasure's worth it. That's the argument. It's seemingly a, a rather neocon uh, kind of argument. And there are a lot of people saying, we don't want to be involved in this. Why, why are we involved in never-ending wars? Ukraine's an absolutely terrible place, and Vladimir Zelensky is an absolutely terrible guy. Man, I am not making the argument that Vladimir Zelensky is the guy I want at my dining room table. I am not making the argument that the man is Churchill for the love of the Lord. I'm making the argument that maybe, just maybe, this is the way to destabilize Vladimir Putin. The problem is, what does it mean? At what moment do we get the result that we want? What is that result and why is it not shared with the American people? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Major Mike Lyons joins us right now, retired United States Army military analyst. You see him on TV and hear him on radio all across the country. Another $2 billion after, of course, the visit from Joe Biden to Ukraine. Let's, let's start there uh, on the visit to Ukraine. What did you make of that visit? Was it the right move or the wrong move? No, I think it was the right move. It took a lot of personal courage, frankly, to, to do something like that. And for, for someone who's as old as he is to go through that was a physical demanding process. And it, it propped up. It worked out. It looked good. Um, I think that, um, you know, from, his, from a foreign policy perspective, it was uh, something that was good. Can't take it away from him. I'm not sure it was Church Willian or whatever the other people want to compare it to, and, uh, but uh, it did take um, some amount of planning to do. He did put himself in danger, so I have to give him credit for that. I think that, um, but but the question gets back to you know we're going to work do do whatever we can uh, there, but what does that really mean? I mean we're going to continue to give them money, continue to give them supplies. Um, he's still not sending the F-16s. It doesn't look like the strategic weapons, and so the Pentagon I think still is influencing the White House, basically saying. We got to keep Ukraine on the defense, keep them destroying the Russian military in place, uh, but the, but not giving any capability for them to go on the offense. And right now, in a in a time of two sides fighting a war of attrition, one side attacks the other side's ability to wage war, and that's how they would do it. Well, right now, Ukraine doesn't have that ability. They can't attack Russia. They can't attack those drone sites inside of Russia. However, Russia inside the house, inside Ukraine, can continue to do it. So they now have a significant advantage. Let's now uh, take a look at what we're talking about here. This $2 billion more. There's always another $2 billion, another $20 billion, another this, uh, uh, another that. This is where we should spend our money, Major? That we should spend our money in this uh, fight? And by the way, it's, it's Vladimir Zelensky who always gets referred to as Churchill, and I'm, I'm not so much down for that, for that comparison. But um, we're now over certainly $100 billion dollars. This is worth mm -hmm. it? This is the way to fight? Well, well I, I, this latest one it likely is going to be for ammunition and 155 artillery ammunition. I saw Bloomberg report a couple of weeks ago that, that said that that contract now has been put out. You see the government has said 
that uh, we're going to be producing more. Not really sure that is the case. Uh, artillery ammunition is produced actually by the government. The government owns the factory that does it. It's in Scranton, Pennsylvania, of all things. Uh, Joe <laughs> Biden's uh, hometown there. It's funny. And 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 yeah, and and they they contracted out to different um, defense contractors over the course of years. General Dynamics currently has it right now, and we know that they've put out this contract to pr- to produce more there as well as buy more overseas. So I think a lot of that is going to have to do with the, with the supply chains and making sure that they're at, that they have enough ammunition. Because if you do the math, they still run out of ammunition anywhere from six to eight months from now, based on the amount that they're firing both sides at each other. I think that's what Russia is going to do on the other side. Get one one five two. That's the millimeters they fire. One five two ammunition from North Korea and Iran, and it's still going to become an artillery war. I still think for the next six months. So. A lot of that money is going to go literally to one five five ammunition. Yes, but it's it's. I'm not asking where the money's going, although I, I believe there are Republicans who want a full accounting of where the money is going. Talking to Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army West Point guy and a military analyst seen on uh, television and heard on radio stations across the country, none better than this station right here. I'm asking whether or not the money that we're spending is going to see a result. We still don't hear from the Biden administration the very concept of results. Dear Lord, what does this get us at the end? And we've spent $287 billion. I just picked a number out of the the blue. Mm -hmm. Vladimir Putin is what? Russia is what? Ukraine is what? There has to be as one would rationally see it, an end game. Otherwise, you're making the argument that it is a sustainable, valuable proposition, Major, to go mm-hmm. about this for the long term, multiple years. What's the end mm-hmm. game as you see it, as other analysts see it, and is Joe right. Biden willing to state what it is? Right. So, so Tony, over the weekend, too, you saw NATO countries um, now, start, from the military side, starting to talk about what kind of support they're going to give long-term, six to nine months. A lot of that has to do with how they want to negotiate a potential peace settlement there. I I think this is what it looks like. Russia does get to keep certain areas of Ukraine in the Donbass region, uh, areas that they had occupied since 2014. This war has been really going on since then. Crimea remains a wild card until Ukraine can actually threaten Crimea. Russia looks like they're going to control that too. Um, I think that um, the Dnepro River serves as a natural boundary between some of these areas there. Russia will create there'll, there'll be a demilitarized zone created between these two countries. Um, the, the, the battle will be frozen in place. You'll see a scenario similar to what we have in North and South Korea. We'll have another Cold War again. I believe that's what this is going to look like at the end. Now, from our perspective, from the military's perspective, that's going to work because Ukraine is going to have destroyed a, a great majority of the Russian army in place. They won't be able to, to threaten them um, for the next, you know, five to ten years at this point, ba- you know, based on their capability. So what does Ukraine get out of that? Ukraine gets out of that EU membership and likely now I never would have thought said this before. But now maybe five years down the road, they get NATO, they get into NATO, they get more security assurances from the West once Russia has, I been. Got- um, let's say. You know, I, I got to hold so on. Let's, hold on. You're, you're, you're making me want to drink bourbon, Major. Let, let's take a, a second here. There is a, a situation, as you see it, and maybe others see it, that what you get is basically a DMZ-like zone 
between Russia and Ukraine and they get control of certain areas of the Donbass? And if that's the case, why, since we've known that that's a possibility, why aren't we already there? Mm-hmm. Why not just put an end to it? Why would the Russians want to keep losing person after person? I know they don't care about the people, but eventually right. you're going to eliminate the ability to engage population of the nation, which is a huge issue for Vladimir Putin. If this is the end game, why not do it now since everybody already knows what that card plays out like? Well, Russia doesn't want to stop. They still believe, you know, their strategic goals and objectives are not aligned with their ways and means to accomplishment. They, they believe that they could still overtake the country. So, and, and on the other side, Ukraine believes that they can kick Russia out of those areas. And, and their strategic goals and objectives aren't aligned with their ways and means because right now they can't do that. They can't attack Russia's ability to wage war. They don't really threaten Crimea. They can't, they, they, they need to look for attacking the army, right? So when, 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 Units go to war like this, you attack the army or you take land. The Ukraine military should be focused on destroying the Russian military in place, and they are. They're doing a, a good job of that, especially uh, in, in those areas in the south. So the question gets back to whether R- Russia will accept that as, as an, a peace agreement and whether Ukraine will accept it too, because Ukraine has said that they won't. But that's what the West wants. The West wants Ukraine to make some concessions in order to stop the fighting, create that kind of DMZ along the Dnepro and then further and then further east and then get back to rebuilding it. And what Ukraine gets in that is, again, EU membership and then potentially membership into NATO. Who believes that Vladimir Putin would accept that as victory? Um, I don't think he would. I don't think a lot of people do, but he might be forced to based on this, you know, war of attrition that's taking place. What's happened in his history is Russia goes into this freezing period when they conduct warfare. They did it kind of in Syria. They've done it where they just kind of stop fighting because they know the other side is not mustering enough of the offense in order to do anything about it. Now, I think maybe that's what they'll try to do. They'll try to freeze this thing out two or three years, maybe. They'll try to see how much patience the West has with supplying Ukraine for doing this. Russia holds on to do what it can. Uh, but, uh, but again, until there's other leverage someplace. So wild card remains China. And, and deep down, China it's to their advantage that Russia is weakened because they've become fundamentally a client state of Russia. So they want to see Russia somewhat weakened, but they don't want to see them totally destroyed. That's not good for the world with 1,500 nuclear or so tipped weapons that they have sitting you know, inside of Russia that could be launched anywhere. So, so this is, 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 to my point, talking to Major Mike Lyons, retired United States uh, Army. Um, when I talk about Biden, First, first, when we talk about Vladimir Putin, I don't know if there's any way to get him to accept uh, some kind uh, of deal. I don't know who could possibly convince him. He see, It seems very obvious that he does not care how many people get destroyed, how many lives lost. He doesn't seem to be playing a long-term strategic game with growing a nation, nor a short-term strategic game. Otherwise, he would have played it already. And then on the China conversation, that really brings it back to Joe Biden, because if mm-hmm. you believe that that China, that Russia, as you've stated here on this program before, could become mm-hmm. a vassal state uh, for China, then it's even mm-hmm. more imperative that the United States have an end goal and an end game to this. A, a DMZ between Russia and Ukraine seems like a pretty ridiculous end goal, but maybe that's it. But it doesn't now solve the problem of what happens to Russia as it has been weakened and what China does. Is there anybody engaging a conversation about this major, a, a the, the no. issue of that reality? 
No, I think so. I do think from my sources there are folks within the State Department as well as the NSC recognizing that that threat that is there. But let's face it, Ukraine is not vanquishing Russia. It's not happening. It's not from a wartime perspective. They're, they're not, they don't have the capability to push them out themselves. Russia will have to do what they did in Afghanistan. That's leave. They'd have to physically leave those areas. Now, they've completely, again, wrecked mo- most of the, the area there. They've destroyed it, and they're continuing to destroy it. But that's, that's the only way they stop, and perhaps that's part of their DNA. Maybe this does end when Vladimir Putin does decide to declare some kind of victory. He gets Crimea or something. And, and then he's now then taken down inside of Russia. I'm never an advocate of using that as a plan. I think that's just, just a kind of wishful thinking in the lot. But I think the, the DMZ idea, though, gets the fighting to stop, gets, the, gets at least a pause in it, and, get, and allows Ukraine to take a breath because they're the ones that need it. They, they're the ones that are being outgunned. They're the ones that, are, that don't have the people that can go on the offensive right now. Let's um, move the conversation before I let you go. Let's move it over. Uh, to this conversation uh, about China and the Department of Energy saying with low confidence that they believe that COVID leaked from a lab in China. Now, low confidence doesn't mean they don't believe it. Actually, to engage the conversation of low confidence means they have some reason to believe that this was a lab leak, a conversation that six months ago you would have been told you're a terrible anti-American racist bigot uh, for having. We now have the FBI with moderate confidence. We have the Department of Energy with with low uh, confidence. What does this idea that there is more and more proof that this was a lab leak do for U.S.-China relations? What does it do for China's perception on the world stage, for example, as it tries to further its dominance over Taiwan? Does this have any play negatively to China? Meaning, will it strengthen other nations to engage differently with them? So I, I don't know. I, I look everything you know through my military lens here. It's another example of China is more than just an adversary that they fact that they could have leaked this out, knowing it gets to the United States, knowing what it would do to our economy. Uh, I look at what they've done in, in the Spratly Islands. I've looked at what they've done in the South China Sea. I look what they're doing um, with, uh, with spy balloons. They're clearly an adversary. And, and, and again, on a, if they decide now to put lethal weapons inside of Russia to help in Ukraine, then, then the proxy war is on it on full at that point. China always does, though, play the long game. They usually have strategic patience uh, with everything. And there are countries, and especially in Africa and other third world countries, that will, you know, still side with them for no matter what reason because of what China does. To They're getting paid. Resources into their organization. So I, I don't know. I, I, I just think that the perception of the world is baked in what China is already. Major Mike Lyons, I appreciate you taking the time. M-A-J, Mike Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S, Major Mike Lyons on the Twitter box. You can follow him there. More is coming up. Keep it right here. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. That that would mean that the debt of Disney would get dumped on their taxpayers. Uh, they would have to do services, and it would cause major property tax increases for people in central Florida. Now, I rejected that. A lot of media reported that that would happen, and I said that will not happen. And so even though, and I'll announce here who's going to be 
uh, running Disney on behalf of the state, even though I would like eventually the local government to just take this, uh, I was not going to put taxpayers at risk, and I did not trust them to be able to handle this at this point. So it's under state control, not local control. They may be able to negotiate something in the future, uh, but right now there will be no additional tax burden on any Flor Floridian in Central Florida or otherwise. And that is the story. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. I mean, as much as the lab leak is is the story of the day, uh, DeSantis signing this and taking the um, status away from the Reedy Creek Improvement District was really taking the self-governance status away from Disney. This is a huge story because it's a huge political story because it's DeSantis and running for president and everything else. If DeSantis thought that this was going to put a tax burden on people, never, ever, ever would have happened. There would have been something else. Because DeSantis is not crazy. As a matter of fact, if this had put a tax burden on uh, residents of, of Florida, I'd be like, that's the craziest, boldest thing I've ever seen. Let's see how he survives it. You don't usually survive well when you're running for president. And you're like, yeah, I added taxes to my citizens. Now I want to go to run the country. That's a that's a rough one. That's a rough one-two punch right there. And again, people are going to discuss this as taking, you know, uh, retribution. That's it, retribution against uh, Disney for getting involved in politics. Well, I don't mind slapping Disney around. I do mind retribution. But if you want to argue that Disney shouldn't have this incredible deal, okay, change the deal. It's all right. Disney will figure it out. Everyone will be fine. I think it's a fascinating story. I don't actually think it moves the needle as much as others who just want to scream about DeSantis. But I don't want to scream about DeSantis, so that's that. Find everything, TonyCats.locals.com. Tomorrow, everyone, take care. <laughs>